trying to retain staff, to, uh, increase skill level, just in general get people to take the industry seriously in a way that meant that they could build a career was just every year seemingly getting harder and harder. And so I, it's a sigh of relief for me to not really have to invest a lot of energy into that anymore. This week on Dirty Linen, we continue to look at hospitality businesses that have flipped things around, changed the situation, worked with the COVID curveballs to find some silver linings. And today's guest is someone who I love talking to and I love eating her food. Jenna Abruzzese is the chef and co-owner of Kitchenette in Hawthorne. Um, I think is, you know, in terms of coaxing flavour from food and just finding the sweet spot and the the points of magic. I think Jenna is just an absolute gun. Uh, welcome to Dirty Linen, Jenna. Good afternoon. Uh, so you and your partner, Megan, went into the pandemic with a cafe and you've come out the other side. Well, let's hope we're, we're out somewhere, we're out somewhere anyway, <laughs> yes, the other side, somewhat. <laughs> but you've come out with something that's quite different. Um, I'd love to hear more about your story. Yeah. So um, we have a tiny little shop that seats 20. I guess it's pretty common now, like... Um, 10 years ago, they were the holes in the wall, but now it's pretty standard. Um, and so we were a dine-in cafe, like, you know, super Melbourne style. And obviously sitting very close together is no longer acceptable. And we sort of um, just thought, mm, how are we going to do this long term? Let's research other countries where where, um, you know, pandemics have, where we've had this sort of thing before and see what happened to the economy and how businesses dealt with that um, to get a bit of inspiration for making decisions because I'm an insane planner. There's no way I could just fly by the seat of my pants through this. Like I needed a solid plan, something that we could you know, work on and develop to continue through and come out the other end because we just thought there's no way this is ever going to go back, you know, to the way it was before. So now we have a fine food store. And um, I have so many feelings about this because Kitchenette is such a, as you say, it's a little place, um, but it was so nice to sit there and watch you in your kitchen. Just to, you really felt like you were in the thick of it. It was, um, yeah, everything was just right there, um, and it was it was a real. I guess it, to me, it felt like a place where you could really take a, a slice out of your day and just be in this other moment. Um, so, as a customer, you know, I just feel a little bit sad. But um, <laughs> oh yeah, you and the rest okay. Of so I don't want to add to. <laughs> that grief but um tell me tell me a bit more about it like what is it that you're offering your community now yeah so we just slowly we had a vision but we knew we couldn't do it drastically we had to slowly evolve and that was I think it was good because you know we had to switch from 
serving a full a la carte menu with a, a little bit of take home on the side. So like soups and bolognese sauce, pretty standard, but, you know, totally cutting off a la carte in one day was not really, we needed to take them with us and get them on board, our regulars and our core customers to really understand that we don't have an option here. This is not what we would choose to do. Um, And I really felt for Megan too because that's her thing. Like, you know, sure, I can cook all the food, but, you know, the the big, you know, 50% of KitchenAid is Megan and 50% of KitchenAid is service. And that's why, you know, chicken soup is chicken soup, but it's not when Megan serves you. So I felt like it was devastating actually, like knowing that, We'd never serve people like that again. Um, But at the same time, it was this opportunity to tweak the business in a way that we would never have had before. So, yeah, slowly working out what the customers wanted from us and then being very flexible, you know, lockdown one, lockdown two, Christmas, five-day lockdown, these all these things have influenced the offering and so and obviously the seasons and availability and so so many things playing into that. But being able to present it in a way that the customer is just feeling the same way as they did when they dined in. They feel looked after, comfortable, listened to, like their needs are being met, like they're being nurtured. They don't want to hear, oh, we can't get this for you and they don't want to hear they wanted an escape from the the awful you know pandemic really like so we tried to be that you know that um that steady sort of sanctuary that's so interesting um that you've attempted to create that same feeling of warmth um even without that sit-down experience. And, yeah, I will just say for people who haven't been to KitchenAid, Megan is an incredibly warm presence. You, you definitely feel like you're, yeah, in the bosom of hospitality. It's just a very um, it's a very safe place. And I suppose that is, you know, part of feeling like you can take a slice out of your day and just, you know, forget your cares and just dive into an omelette or a bowl of soup or whatever it was, um, was, yeah, exactly as you say, it was uh, the energy that Megan brings to the business. Um, so, okay, I'm slowly getting over my grief about <laughs> about this, although it's, it's interesting to hear that you guys felt it as a, as a big loss as oh, well. yeah, yeah, yeah. We're over it now. Like you've processed it, but like lately there's a few people, like 99% of our customers are beautiful beings and then there's this 1%, like everyone who has their own business that they work in every day, there's always a few rotten, you know, eggs or bad apples and I just feel like the you can't dine in anymore, we're sorry, um, yeah, we, the, uh, we can't have – you sitting close together anymore it's not financially viable like there's different narrative different stories for different um you know different types of customers but there's been a few that are quite rude and I just feel like that is something that that's the only negative thing I think to take away from it we've grown as individuals as business partners we've I've grown in my relationship like there's so many positives but it's just those little they compound after a while and sometimes you're just like okay we need to have a little bit of a like a 
what do you what am I trying to say like Megan and I would be like oh my god you know I, we if I take one more I can't take one more day of these people but then you sort of get over it and you're like okay they they're just everyone is just a bit on edge you know they're at the end of their tether so we're just trying to flip it back to what do they need what do these people need everyone is trying to like they're on the wheel like everyone's back on the you know working like mad again you know life is seemingly back to normal but it's really not and not everyone has the capacity now like anymore to go back to the levels that we were before like that level of work that output I think everyone is a bit more fragile a bit less tolerant a bit and so we're trying to just flip it and view it as our opportunity to tap into that and make them feel like they're being taken care of because that's like what people crave like everyone just wants community and to be connected and to be able to just slow down a bit and like the start of COVID like now everyone's like oh it's so you know life's crazy again and so I think Kitchenette is you know the familiarity of the dishes and that the old school um you know approach to putting things together the menus for the Friday night dinner boxes and all of that is just it's all just what is going to make you feel loved really like I mean I know it sounds cliche but that's that's what's at the core of it that's the energy that you're putting into it. So it, just let me check. I understand, Jenna. Is you know you're saying everyone's been a bit worn down by everything that we've gone through. So is what you're doing is part of it, sort of looking after yourselves and your own wear and tear, right? And yeah, I don't, I don't. We don't want to rock the boat. We don't want to do anything drastic. Like I think from the outside, kitchen is seemingly quite rigid. You know, we're Monday to Friday. We're eight to eight to three kitchen closes at two like we've got these quite strict rules but that's because what we do offer is so um we really listen to what the people want and then give it to them so some you know one week it'll be like you know you see the waves through the pandemic everyone was crazy for lasagna and then everyone was crazy for this and everyone was crazy for that so it's like the customers are the people paying the money so if you're not making something that they want well then you're not going to have any like in in yeah so what have they been telling you that they want and what what are you giving them yeah well I feel like there was a time in the pandemic when when the food was the food the people wanted was very rich and comforting and um like the mac and cheese and the you know in the middle of winter like the slow cooked um beef in red wine and like um the delivery like provador started up and everyone was excited to have meal boxes at home and you know creating restaurant dishes in their own kitchens and then everyone was like oh i'm getting fat covid i put on 10 kilos because of covid and so everyone's like oh i need chicken soup this week so you sort of have to ride the wave of how everyone that you see the trends like the trends in melbourne or what's going on and we don't really jump on board we sort of just use our skills to coax you know them into what kitchenette can 
what's what Kitchenette does, which is yeah. yeah. Does that sort of make sense? I, I've gone on a bit of a tangent. But. Yeah, it's like you're. It's almost like you're trying to be half a step ahead of where people are in a in a food sense. So, so you mentioned the Friday night dinner boxes. I mean, what are they, and what are some of the other things that you're offering? Ah, uh, so. Um, it was big last year. Everyone was doing a box. Um, but then I feel like a lot of those businesses have gone back to dine in to their original, um, models. And we didn't really do that. We sort of, we switched to our, our, um, food store model and we fill the fridge every day and, um, with different meals and soups and whatnot. And then there's, um, the sandwiches and the salad offerings. It's all really accessible, just everyday food that um, that you don't have to make because <laughs> we make it. But the dinner box now is because everyone is flat out back at work and they don't they want healthy, delicious food, but they just want to be able to pick it up or it, it arrives on their doorstep um, Friday afternoon. Megan and I do the deliveries, and it's just like really homely, beautifully cooked, well put together food that they can either eat all of that night and make a three-course or a four-course dinner or you can break it up and you can have the soup for lunch the next day or it just suits, you know, what everyone is doing on the weekends. A lot of the customers, they have little kids and they've got heaps of activities and sports, so it suits them because they're just flat out with the kids. And and then we've got older customers that don't want to, you know, a few of the older customers don't want to go out to restaurants all the time like they they feel more vulnerable like they tell us how and that's the other thing Megan really gets an insight into what the people are really truly feeling like you can read all the articles you want but if you talk to the people they're our people and so we want to know what they're thinking and what how they're living their lives differently and then we sort of try and tap into that. So I'm really getting a sense of how you create that real hospitality experience and that intimacy in this other style of service. Yeah, there's just like the food is just like, oh, well, you know, broccoli's cheap and it's beautiful, so we'll just do that. Like it's not – it's a bit of an afterthought. It's more about um, – it's not that it's not important, but they're just classic flavours that all go together. It's not – it doesn't require a lot of – thought like planning the actual dishes it's about how to put it together and what people like you know before the budget comes out people were seemingly hesitant to spend money so it was a bit more of a uh, beef and mushroom pies with mash and like a watercress salad with and then a chicken soup you know for the next day or like it was a bit more cheap and cheerful and then seemingly people are like oh awesome budget's out and then the hundred dollar box comes back because everyone is you know they've planned their seemingly planned out their finances a bit more and I mean it's Hawthorne too it's not like like we understand the demographic everyone is pretty uh, tuned into what's happening politically and so I think that's also yeah a lot of things sort of play into what what we're offering and what we're pushing. 
Mm. So for people who don't live in Melbourne or know much about Hawthorne, it's a eastern suburb. It's um, reasonably wealthy. There's a lot of families, a lot of private schools, a lot of older people as well. Do you feel like are these your people I'm talking about, Jenna, or do you want to add to that demographic? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So when Kitchener opened, the we were seven days and it was a very brunch, expensive brunch Um demographic was late 20s early 30s high disposable income then those people oh and retirees so they would be like the midweek they would come for morning tea or after golf or that sort of vibe but then those then those younger couples started to get uh started to they started to have families so people started to have babies we've got customers that had no babies before when Kitchenette opened and then we've seen them and they've just had the third baby. So you've gone from a couple having, you know, smashed avo with um, like Camparium Orange for brunch on a Saturday to um, to mum, dad is now back at work and mum is coming to get like bolognese sauce and soup like, you know, while she's walking the dog and then, oh, I'm going back to work now so I'm going to get um, a couple of chicken dinners and what's this Friday night box thing because they're busy now. And so we've evolved with with them and their lifestyle and how their lifestyles have evolved. And it's the same with the older, the older customers. Um yeah, it's the same sort of thing. Like they are the grandparents of these of the younger customers, so they're, they're like, oh, well, you know, there's another one on the way now, so and they'll buy things and stock up the freezer for the granddaughter that's about to have another baby or someone's in hospital and they, you know. It's so, it's so amazing, like you're so threaded through this community. Well, I do feel connected. That's, yeah, like you mentioned before about it's as much for them as it is. Like it's as much for us as it is for them, and that's true. Like we're very connected to the customers. Um, yeah, you said, Jenna, at the start of this conversation that you are a real planner, and so I'm interested to hear a bit more about that. And 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 you said you researched other places that had gone through, like, I guess, analogous sort of societal upheavals. What what kind of what sort of research were you able to do and what kinds of things did you learn from that? Oh, just um, just articles online about like China when SARS hit last time and how, um, yeah, and just how locking down affects the way people behave and just in, yeah, like I think Japan was another one that we looked at but, um, that once you change the way people conduct their daily lives for a period, like, you know, for more than 30 days or something like that, I can't remember exactly, it was so long ago, but there was all these little things that I was like, well, this is going to happen to us. Like, this is happening to us. So we need to just let go of this model now. We need to, like, process psychologically that this is no longer, like, it's not just no longer 
viable, like we can't do it because obviously we got, everyone was made to go takeaway only, but it's not, if we could go back to dining, like now we can go back to dining, but it's not financially viable. Like we used to cram people in and have them really squashed up and, you know, and so looking at how like cities where everyone where there's a you know a big population and there's tiny shops everywhere and there's loads of places where it's takeaway only so how what do they do you know with lines out the street and you see it on no reservations when he goes to you know all over the world it's not i think just australia sometimes you know we never we're never going to see some of the things that we see overseas here like in those cities that have like ancient food cultures like that are super traditional we have this hot pot of everyone and so we're never going to get you know streets and streets and streets of like the same style of cuisine and so yeah it's just so you feel like you can sort of pluck um learnings from different places different traditions and do what works for that space and for your for your community yeah that's so if there was like a magic wand waved and let's say let's say the magic wand was 100% vaccination and you could you know theoretically people could be crammed in together i wouldn't because the amount of well, firstly the amount of energy it took to do it to change I think it would be wasted I feel like that in itself was like starting another business it didn't look like it from the outside but psychologically it was it was like doing writing a business plan on the run while you're working without any downtime whilst you're trying to not get COVID like that to me, like I'm exhausted from that. There's no way I'll change back just because I'm too tired. <laughs> but also, yeah, for, from uh, like a more sustainable, like a financially sustainable perspective, this is smarter because now we're not just feeding people breakfast, morning tea and lunch and afternoon tea. We're doing dinner as well, which is sort of what we intended to do at the beginning when we wanted to try and introduce this crazy early dinner idea I don't know if you remember that but that was pretty insane yeah I do actually but I I vaguely remember it so it was like well tell me what it was was it a kind of um snacky early dinner with the kids kind of vibe what was it yeah 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 it was like that we just thought um it's funny when you think about these things now I think what the hell were we thinking but we were like seven till seven seven days a week and so the kitchen would close at seven um, and we had, like, we, people would, obviously, like, you're getting your food at seven, but, um, I mean, that's crazy. That's too early. You can't run a restaurant like that. But um, <laughs> but I love that we just thought, you know, um, let's just try this because we didn't want to work all night and all day and we, we eventually we switched to Monday to Friday because of the area. It's so... Um, there's a lot of small businesses and it's quite commercial and we're so small that um, the brunch, like people wanted to linger longer. And that was, I was like, Oh, these people want to sit here for a long time. <laughs> and so, you know, you just learn to, um, what am I trying to say? Make the decisions that work for your business and the community. Yeah, that's right. And not be, 
Yeah, and not be so rigid because, you know, I've seen people, they've shut their businesses because, it, you know, it wasn't going to plan or the vision. It wasn't the vision. And I w- always swore, I said to Megan, we're not going to be those people. If it's not working, we just fix it. Like, or we change it or we evolve. We'll evolve with the customers to make sure that we're, you know, we're meeting our own needs as much as the business needs to make money. Like it's, that's what we're there to do. I I can't help but think, Jenna, that that flexible mindset has got something to do with the way that you think about produce and the way that you relate to the seasons, which is also very responsive. The crazy seasons. Yeah, and I think (laughs) I, I, I remember this, I'll probably get this, this wrong, but I feel like I remember you saying that there was some pears on the windowsill for six days and you were just waiting for them to get to the right point and then you basically used them like that minute that they were exactly how you wanted them to be. Like is that? That's my life, Danny Valant. That's my life. I'm just waiting, waiting, waiting for the tomatoes, for the cauliflowers, for the eggplants, for everything, like for the lemons. And so... Because I feel like if you're waiting for the vegetables and the fruit to speak to you, that why not also be listening to your customers with the same intent and the same responsiveness? Well, now I yell at the customers because they're like, oh, why don't you make this this week? And I'm like, well, it's just they're not ready and I show them. I'm like, see, look here, come in here and have a look. I can't make it yet. Oh, I didn't realise that. Oh, how long do you have to keep them for? Well, sometimes I have to keep box of tomatoes for 14 days before we can even, before we can even use them for a sandwich. And everyone thinks I'm a bit crazy, but that's like that's how everything in the market is unless you're using super small, you know, boutique suppliers, which like I just didn't grow up in the industry like that. I grew up using you know, the big fruit and veg companies where you're ordering like boxes and boxes and boxes of cauliflowers and, you know, tomatoes, like these tiny, beautiful little farms. It's just not my, whilst they have their place and that's like, that's fine dining, fancy stuff. I'm not fancy. I'm like, you know, basic, basic. The whole kitchenette, the backbone of kitchenette is like onion, celery, carrots. That's it. And you'd be lucky to get you know, the, those pears, you were lucky. <laughs> you were lucky that day. So, yeah. You know what? I felt lucky because <laughs> that tart was ridiculous. Um, Jenna, give us the little potted history of how you came up in the industry. Oh, I just sort of like weaseled my way into Nikki Reamer's kitchen. Oh, actually, before that I worked um, for Daniel Wilson at Jacques Ramon's little I was thinking about it before, actually. I was like, oh, if they ask about that, what am I going to say? Jacques opened this um, this funny little bistro in Federation Square. When was that? Like uh, 2000 and, yeah. And so Daniel, Daniel Wilson was the head chef and I was I started my apprenticeship in the Burbs in French Gully where I grew up and at a little, like, really bogan restaurant like it was so bad but it was so good at the same time because the guys that owned it and that worked there had worked for some really good chefs in the industry like um blakes and um and one of the guys knew daniel and i went to trade school with a friend of mine at trade school was at jacques and she was on pastry and so 
this my head chef was like you know what you should just go and work at one of those restaurants because you're bored and you're really curious and I was only 16 like I was yeah I didn't even know what kaffir limes were like I had no clue like Daniel said oh go and get the coriander from the cool room and I got like oregano or something like I had no clue like I mean my family's Italian but you know, it's like Aussie migrants. Like it was iceberg lettuce and ragu. Like it's not like we were gourmet, you know. So, yeah, so it was just a big leap from suburban cafe bar restaurant to Fed Square. Like, and then, yeah, I think that someone told me about Nikki and I was getting fed up with stinky boys and I was like yeah I'm gonna go and work for a woman like I was so excited and so I just rang her up and I said I don't know if you're hiring but I just want to come work for you and then I got yeah it was a big shock because I was like the only apprentice with I think I know there were like 14 chefs this is at Langton's that was at Langton's yeah yeah, and so and it was really shiny. It was huge. Like it was huge. It was shiny. It was insanely formal. And I mean, I'd done a few shifts at Jacques, but this was different. You were on show. It was like a parade of chefs every night like out in the the kitchen is super open like so for everyone that doesn't know Chaconis is in the space now where Langtons was on Flinders Lane. And so yeah, and that's where I met Megan. Megan was assistant manager and I was, I think I was 17. And yeah. Yeah, and then after that, Rosa, I went and worked for Rosa and yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> and then I think when I um, encountered you, you were working at Rumi with Joseph Abood. Yeah, so I worked at Rumi for a while. I went overseas and worked in... Um, big hotel in Germany and then when I came back I thought oh, I better settle down and actually stick it somewhere for more than five minutes so I stayed with Joseph for a while for nearly five years before we opened Kitchenette. That's so interesting so uh, what do you think it is that's brought you to this place where your food is kind of brilliant and basic? Because all of those people know how to cook like oh this is gonna I don't I don't even know what it's gonna sound like but whatever they know how to cook old school like super classic French style but then they're all really into either rustic Italian or rustic Spanish or you know like really um like super primitive Middle Eastern or Daniel's Asian. And so I feel like I've had exposure to these really extreme ends of those spectrums. Like, you know, you can't, if you want to be able to cook and perfectly season food, like then Asian food is, I'm being really blanket, but, you know, that's where it has to be sweet, salty, sour, hot. Like you can't not understand that if you don't understand that then you can't cook asian like 
And then Sicilian, like you can apply that to all of the other cuisines. It's just not really talked about when we talk about Sicilian or or um, like Lebanese or Persian. We don't talk about food like in the way we do Asian food. So you, you feel like you've got all these sort of building blocks and that yeah you have a checklist it's it seems clinical but it's not you're just like oh well that we need to add that we need more lemon like i there's a woman that's written the book add more lemon or must add lemon what's her name again she is onto it like no one i can't believe it's taken this long for everyone to talk about just add lemon like it's like the secret to everything um, is there a book called Always? Oh, okay, Always Add Lemon. Is that it? I can't. I don't know exactly, but I feel like you're talking about salt, fat, acid, nah, meat. No, oh, no, not, is yeah. it Daniel? Oh, yeah, Daniel yeah, Alvarez. Yeah, right, yeah. right, right, right. Yeah, yeah but okay. but um, salmon as well. Like that book, it's the same. You can't um, you can't just add salt. Like you've got to add, you've got to season everything accordingly to its you know to when you're each edition, like all these little things that that your mentors or your teachers pass on to you. And then, you know, what's the job of the chef to bring all of their experience together? Like, and yeah. that's, yeah, and that's the thing. And I can pinpoint like, you know, Rosa, you know, that woman's crazy. Like she, she, sometimes you're like, what? what are you doing? Like, you can't cook like that. That's not the right way. Like, that's not, you're not following the rules. And she's like, oh, I don't care. We do what we want here. Does it taste good? Do the customers love it? Then what, you know, who cares? So, you know, and then Daniel is like, no, no, that's not how we do things. Like, there's, everyone's got their personality and their personality comes out with their cooking. And I think that's like, all the people I've worked for have big personalities. And so, you can pinpoint each, you know, each chef has what they've given me or what I've taken from them. Um, yeah, and just put it all together. Interesting. And in a way it sounds like what they've given you is a confidence or you've taken from it is a confidence to keep things simple. Yeah, I think that um, Rumi at the core of it, Joe's food is – seemingly very complex because you've got so many things going on there's loads of spices um you need to understand about nuts and the oils and um yeah and it's not just acid there's loads of different ways to bring acid in and but if you don't understand how to work with garlic onions and just the vegetable i mean that's that is at the core of all of that cooking, just being able to use two or three ingredients. It's the same with it. It's the same with Rose's food. Like you have to be able to get the best out of two to three ingredients or else there's not, you, it costs too much money. Yeah. Um, oh, so interesting. And I love it. It just makes me, it just makes my mouth water talking about food like this. Um, Jenna, we've been talking a lot about staffing on dirty linen over the past couple of weeks. It seems to be the thing that everybody in hospitality is talking about. I guess you've sort of minimized your need for staff, but, um, you know, what, what do you, what's your philosophy around that? And what are you hearing? I feel sort of 
I feel sad about this because I just realised, like, I haven't said anything about stuff and that it's sort of a bit of a – look, we we have one staff member now who um, is a chef that works with me and that is – that's awesome for me but it's sort of sad because Megan now has no staff but I think that making the decisions that we have has meant that we've avoided a lot of pain and stress that other people are under now. Um, and I guess that is another reason why I wouldn't go back to the old model because that slowly became an issue for people regardless of COVID and trying to retain staff, to, uh, increase skill level, just in general get people to take the industry sort of seriously in a way that meant that they could build a career was just every year seemingly getting harder and harder. And so I, it's a sigh of relief for me to not really have to invest a lot of energy into that anymore, which is sad on one hand, but on the other hand it means we've got more energy for maintaining and growing the business so it's a bit of a yeah yeah it's like you've yeah you've dodged a bullet in a way but at the same time I'm sure it would have been you would have been you'd be an amazing mentor for people well I feel like poor Liam he just gets bombarded with all my craziness um but yeah I do miss the days of having like a a team, a brigade, it's quite – sometimes it can be lonely, isolating, like it's – yeah, there are pros and cons. There's – people are super stressed out by lots of the issues that come with having a big restaurant, with having to maintain, you know, huge rosters and – and but also there's those beautiful moments that you have in restaurants like like service, for example. I don't – have a proper service anymore and um yeah there's all these little things that have slowly been like have been taken away from our model that like there's nothing really that resembles what I you know thrived on as an apprentice or a young chef that apart from the cooking the that the team and the and the adrenaline rush that you get from a service Friday, Saturday night. But at the same time, I don't know, I feel healthier in my mind and we we now, we don't work nights. And there are lots of pros as well. I mean, so you've got to take the pros with the cons. Yeah, it sounds really bittersweet, but it's really, yeah, Jenna, it's been such a pleasure to chat to you and just hear more about how you're nurturing your community and yourselves. I mean, congratulations for the way that you've um, changed your business. It's, it, it, yeah, it's, it, there are sad elements to it and I can tell that you feel those very much as well, but there are so many positives. So, yeah, well done and, um, yeah, <laughs> uh, keep an eye on those pairs. <laughs> I gave one to Megan this afternoon. It was going rogue. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the chat. Awesome. Thanks so much. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about. 
We spend a week thrashing around each issue, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This is a Deep in the Weeds production. That's not my dog. <laughs> it's my dog. Don't worry. Keep going. <laughs> I was really worried that it would be my dog. No, sorry. <laughs> <laughs>